0: According to the World Health Organization's 2021 global report, one in seven 10 to 19 year olds experiences a mental disorder, accounting for 13% of the global burden of disease in this age group. Now it's true that in many societies, mental disorders, uh, related to marginalization and impoverishment, uh, domestic violence and abuse, overwork and stress are of growing concern And in particular for women's health people with mental disorders experience disproportionately higher rates of disability and mortality for example persons with major depression and schizophrenia have a 40 to 60 percent greater chance of dying prematurely than the general population owing to physical health problems that are often left unattended now that can include things such as cancers cardiovascular diseases diabetes hiv infections and unfortunately, as well suicide. It's to be said that suicide is the second most common cause of death among young people worldwide, and the fourth leading cause of death amongst 15 to 19-year-olds. Now, the 66th World Health Assembly, which consisted of ministers of health from 194 member states, adopted the World Health Organization's Comprehensive Mental Health Action Plan. At the time, it was slated for 2013 to 2020. This was back in 2013. In 2021, the 74th World Health Assembly endorsed updates to the action plan, and it included updates to the plan's options for implementation and indicators. Now, throughout this season, you'll be hearing from a diverse set of voices who each represent a holistic outlook on mental health and perceived disorders But have also dedicated their lives and careers to this endeavor and we will be treating the mental health action plan as a bit of a north star as a bit of a compass for those listeners who've been listening to our previous uh, two episodes in the season will have heard in a bit more detail today i'm really really pleased to be joined by craig delage who has spent a career advocating mental health in the us and asia and is pursuing a master's of public health studies at King's College London uh, with a specialization in global mental health. Craig, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, Rohit, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, for 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 listeners here, I mean, Craig and I we go back, I think, uh, several years when Craig was here in Singapore, and yes. uh, we we got talking about so many things. And I, you know, I've been following his great work um, as well. And I and I just felt it's 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 great to have Craig, you know, your your perspectives on some very intriguing questions that we want to ask. So, well. I'm very intrigued and interested to have this discussion with you today. Um, There's a lot more to you than my brief introduction would describe and your experiences. Why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself and why this is such an important topic for you?
1: Yeah, certainly happy to do so. So um, I'm the founder of um, a consultancy called the Digital Mental Health Project. Uh, That's the the work that I'm spending most of my time doing these days when I'm not working on finishing up this um, Graduate Public Health Program at King's College London, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, This consultancy is one that I created back in 2014 that brings together two sides of my prior professional experience. So, you know, I've spent in my career um, better than 30 years now in life sciences, working across a number of of large kind of multinational corporations as both a commercial and digital health executive. And on a parallel track, as a function of a tragedy in my family related to mental health, I've also been um, a mental health advocate, educator, and caregiver, um, doing a fair amount of work with the National Alliance of Mental Illness here in the United States. But during the three years that I was in Singapore, um, continued to do that work from an an education um, and and an advocacy standpoint with um the mental health advocacy organization that's there in Singapore um and and from the platform that I was on as a regional director of a digital health accelerator in Singapore I have continued to build my network in this area of mental health and digital health in a number of regions throughout Asia um Latin America as well as in Africa and so I see the work that I'm doing um you know, centered in the US, because this is where I'm back living, but really developing a global practice and being an educator, a researcher, and a connector to really help bring about the effect of a better and and more responsible adoption of digital technology in the mental and behavioral health areas and working largely with founders, investors, and implementers, not just here in the US, but globally where this work really brings together my um, occupational background as a digital health strategist um, and my vocational background as a mental health educator um, and advocate. And so I'm always happy to to be um, in forums and discussions like this to really help with um, informing from the perspective of the the work and the research that I'm doing as a consultant and of course as a public health graduate student. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: And, and, and you mentioned digital health strategies because that 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 has to play a very strong role in um, certain strategies, particularly in what we're going to discuss today, um, on how do we try and overcome some of the challenges facing um, uh, mental health and its management. Um, oh yeah, very
1: very much, I mean, it's it's really interesting when you look at um, the investment going into the digital health space, mental health has consistently um, been at the top of the categories of investment in this area, centered largely in the US, but now spreading to Europe and then even to Asia and Latin America. Um, what's interesting is like, I th- it probably wouldn't surprise many of your listeners to know that at the same time that we're getting multiple billions of dollars of increased investment in this space, we're also running up against the typical sort of ethical, uh, legal and regulatory challenges that go with too much money too quickly coming into a space. So as leaders, we have a responsibility to look at this space for its opportunity, which is using the technology to get better access, better treatment, and better outcomes, but also keeping an eye on the ethical side of this to make sure that what we produce is done in an effective, safe, accessible, and usable manner so that the greatest number of people get the greatest benefit with the least amount of harm done. Yeah, that's
0: that's, that's yeah. great. So um, according to the WHO, actually, uh, health systems in large parts of both developing and developed countries of the world have not fully or adequately responded to the burden of mental health and mental disorders. And as a consequence, some of the statistics are showing that the gap between the need for treatment and the provision of treatment is actually quite large and widening even more so as a result of the last years of this uh, pandemic isolation and disruption in right. the context of what you just mentioned i mean you know um, the ability for technology and for digital perhaps to be that uh, sort of uh, fill the gap in a way but w- what's been driving this and are we in that context allowing too many young sufferers to fall through the cracks
1: yeah so you know the who had, had declared even before the pandemic that depression and anxiety Um, was among, and I think now is the top cause of disability on the whole planet, right? Um, And then, of course, the pandemic has only further exasperated that, unfortunately. Uh, Once again, with every crisis, we have both an opportunity and a hazard that we have to address. You know, some of the things when you ask that question that I think are drivers that we are and need to continue to improve at addressing are things like, You know, in our health systems, we have an orientation towards sickness versus health. Too many of the nations on the planet, the ministries of health, actually are not so much focused on health and prevention, but more on uh, focusing investment on the problem once it emerges. Um, And I think what we're learning is that we're never going to be able to train enough mental health professionals fast enough to address the burden of illness, such that we have to, and this is a theme you're gonna hear me talk about over and over again, we have to bring communities and prevention more to bear in order to slow down the rate of growth of burden of illness, as well as to better address the illness that already exists, right? Um, The lack of mental health parity, So so this dichotomy that we've created more in the West than in other parts of the world, where we think of mental health as something different from physical health has created a real problem because what we have are two different systems, right? Um, The physical health and then the mental health. What we're learning more and more though is that those two things are interrelated. And certainly when we look at um, the, the cultures of the East, And the south the global east and south uh like ayurveda in in um south asia or traditional chinese medicine Um, these systems and ways of thinking about health don't even make the distinction right and and we're learning more and more from research that you know if we would take care of the, the the basic pillars of health um good sleep good diet um relaxation good relationships and um, movement, right? That increasingly we're seeing that the lack of of paying attention to these five pillars of health actually result in a lot of um, the non-communicable diseases and chronic illnesses that we have in the society. And also a lot of the depression, anxiety, um, trauma, suicide are exasperated. By a lack of us doing a good job with these basic, you know, sorts of things. Then there's stigma, which unfortunately causes too many people who need help to not be willing to actually raise their hand to get the help that they need. Um, though we can, we're seeing that one of the advantages of digital is that the anonymous nature of digital technology in many cases are ironically allowing many people, because they can be anonymous to get past stigma or get help in situations where otherwise they wouldn't because of stigma, because I can I can not disclose who I am, but get the education and assistance that I need. And then I I think, you know, this will be the last point I'll make here. um, Is, you know, we there are levels of social inequity and social inequality and precarity and insecurity that result in we as human beings frankly you know a, a lot of a lot of what we are calling disorder and disability is really a healthy and sane human response to being in an increasingly insane, inequitable, and unequal and insecure society. And so th- there's this uh writer, jaja um who is one of the, the the founders of what some people call the anti-psychiatry movement. And one of his most famous statements um is something to the effect, and I paraphrase here, that um depression and anxiety um, is a sane response to an insane system. And I think that in, in our individualism, at some point we have to ask two questions. What can individuals do to keep themselves healthy, both physically and mentally? But we have to also ask the question, what do we need to be doing in terms of systemic changes in the structure of our society that actually helps us to be sane um, and healthy. But this idea that you know individuals need to take responsibility for them, themselves um, and take medication, go to therapy, and if they can't, you know, somehow stay healthy, shame on them. Without looking at the larger society and structures that exist around them this is a fool's errand that we're on when it comes to that.
0: Wow, yeah, you know, I mean, you've you've hit the nail on, well, you've hit many nails on the head on this one, because if you look at the way um, uh, clinicians look at, let's say, solving the problem, it's always on the therapeutic side, and therefore specialists must treat a problem. But as you're outlining, well, the, it's it's the it's the sane reaction to what's now becoming an insane environment, um, and and to yeah. look from that perspective, adds so much of uh, complexion to it. Because, well, let me put it this way: I mean, another statistic which comes out from WHO is that it looks at it from the lens of how many specialized health workers are there dealing with mental health in, let's say, the LICs, uh, lower income countries and middle income countries, and it's said to be grossly insufficient. So for example, half the world's population lives in countries where there's one psychiatrist for every 200,000 people or more. Uh, Mental health providers uh, who are trained in the use of psychosocial interventions, even more scarce. So a similarly right. higher proportion of, you know, uh, this means that there's no policy or a plan. There's not real legislation on mental right. health. And sadly enough, uh, something like 36% of people living in LICs are covered by any mental health plan or legislation. That's right. That's right. That that?
1: And yeah. Yeah, so here's and so here's something that we have to consider. I, I read a statistic and it's related to the WHO stats that you just cited, that it would take something like 30 generations um for asia to train Mm -hmm. enough psychiatrists and psychologists to address the current burden of illness so Mm -hmm. so this idea that um we're going to somehow address mental illness in youth and other parts of the population because put the elderly there also right that we're going to somehow do this by through professional means is just Mm -hmm. it's not feasible it's, it's not viable, yeah. but consider consider that we are all grandchildren of um, peoples who pre-industrial, mm-hmm. right? Took care of, of their own physical and mental health in traditional tribal society, not perfectly, right? <laughs> Not perfectly, but better than we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And so I think that at the same time that we talk about, um, you know, tradition, what I'll call traditional Western allopathic approaches, we have to put right there nets to it, community healthcare. We have to equip communities to recover the traditions of care that kept them healthy for millennia before industrialization side by side with medication and therapy where it makes sense. And then I think we have to also invite traditional, we call them traditional healers and and traditional doctors uh, from Ayurveda and um, traditional Chinese medicine and their other traditional systems. That has to also be brought to bear. If we are going to get good Mental and physical health all the way down the pyramid of populations. Mm-hmm. But this idea that we're gonna we're gonna just um diagnose people, call them ill, and give them medication, that's not gonna work. Even mm-hmm. even if we could produce enough medication and therapists, people are not gonna accept that because still the vast majority of the world's population is not in a Western allopathic mindset, yeah. right? That's They're true. actually in a traditional um, homeopathic, naturopathic, mm-hmm. traditional medicine mindset. Yeah. And so we, we've got to, that. that's what community health care um, is really about as distinct from kind of, I guess, what I would call the traditional, um, not traditional, but the modern, you know, kind of profit industrialized healthcare, you know that we um you know are are, i think those of us that are western educated are are accustomed to talking about and thinking about yeah
0: yeah no that's true i mean you know it's 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 i mean we, we we touch on this topic and i and i and i never mean to bash insurance providers but just unfortunately that just keeps coming up as a recurring theme um the way that um most health or uh, mental health therapy is even looked at from a policy making point of view is yes. when it comes to clinical therapy as you refer to this western yes. sort of allopathic treatment and if someone comes in and says no you know what i'm just feeling a little anxious today i just need something to sort of just to talk to or just to figure out where am i headed and that's not yes. something even covered now you add on to that someone who's had a Diagnosis of, uh, of of a cancer or something, and is now suddenly saying, "How is my life even worth living? And what am I going to do? And all of that," there yeah. is no room or play in policy shaping to say this person is going to also need to have um, a robust uh, uh, support system that will either yeah. be underwritten or at least provided for. So, question. Yeah. I guess this is where some of the areas begin to um, get asked back to the uh, to the to the WHO plan is when we look at uh, diseases, uh, the non-communicable disease, we talk about social determinants of health, obesity, and so on. We talk about all those factors. Why aren't we then, or should we not be looking at integrating those resources into the mental health factors as well, rather than what typically happens is um, someone's got an issue, you know, is, is shunted off almost into the into the mental health side of the hospital, yes. and not really integrated into overall care or well-being. Is that is that something that you that 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 you, that you sort of see, or as as and maybe that was a point you were trying to also make earlier? That do we need to integrate this into more holistic care?
1: Yeah, and so you know you you're seeing the passing of more and more laws in different countries around the globe that come under the heading of what we call mental health parity which requires that mental health be treated at the same level of rigor and access as physical health. Now, what we know is that it it takes decades to get um, laws and regulations changed. And then after they get changed, it then takes at least 20 years for, it to become a standard of care, let's call it, right? Right? And so this is where we are. And and as leaders, we have to continually recommit to using um, the, the power and the privilege and the influence that we have in order to keep kind of moving this forward. There's not a lack of recognition that there should be mental health parity there is a lack of habit a lack of education we've got a whole generation of doctors that have to be retrained um there's a lack of incentive because when you have a sick care system the goal is about reducing cost and avoiding the sickest right that i mean that that's unfortunately how too much of the sick care system and the sick care financing system is incentivized, which means that as societies, we have yet to reach a crisis tipping point where we have internalized the, the rationale for physical, social, and economic, and let me emphasize economic health, because I think we would be fooling ourselves if we didn't acknowledge that in our current paradigm for investment, unless we can prove economic benefit, it's going to be very challenging to get um, the status quo, to put money into it. Mm. You know, I hope that my great-grandchildren grew up in a society that is kind of, some people call it a post-capitalist, <laughs> right? Of society where the 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 idea of investing for financial, social, and environmental returns are equal, but in our current paradigm, which is largely financial, you do have to build the economic case. So, mm-hmm. so you know, this is this may sound cynical what I'm about to say, um, but the crisis of the pandemic and the attention to mental health that we're seeing it's very difficult for me to shake that thought that that's because we had an economic slowdown more than anything else. And and so we're in a system where you really have to build the case for the threat to workers and shoppers, (laughs) right? (laughs) And, And unless you can build a sufficient case that We need to make this investment in order to preserve populations that are going to work or shop. It's actually very difficult Mm -hmm. to get policymakers and business people and governments to say, ah, we better put money into this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The whole supply demand uh, chain never seems to end. Exactly. Right. I'm seeing that now. You're absolutely right. You're beginning to see that now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, there's a saying. while I while I pray to Buddha, I keep on killing flies,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> and essentially
1: what that means is yeah. while, while I pray for change for this yeah. shift in paradigm, which is probably going to be more with my grandchildren, I keep on killing flies, which means that I, I keep working on building the health economic rationale yeah. for why we need to shift from sick care to health care, for why we need to engage communities beyond professionals for yeah. why we need to focus on prevention and kind of stem the tide of sickness yeah. and figure out how to make prevention as profitable as illness. Yeah, But these so, yeah, are the sorts of things, right? That's hanging us up and that yeah. are kind of the elephants in the room yeah. that we skirt around, right? I mean, think about value-based care. How long have we been talking about reimbursing healthcare on the basis of outcome, not activity?
0: Very true. That's right. That's it's true. very
1: difficult for those that are making their money on activity to let go of that. I was reading a um, maybe it was a white paper you sent me, Raheed, that like it's only about one percent of healthcare reimbursement is value-based. Talk of it is better than fifty percent, but the actual practice of it is still like one
0: percent. That's right. I know exactly. Now on that on that wavelength, um, yeah. let me let me put some uh, numbers back at you again because I think this is actually linked to this whole idea of. Um, uh, the incentive for us to be looking, the financial and economic incentive for mental health to be bright. So there's a further compounding problem, and that's the poor quality of care. So one is the extent and the coverage and the access. The other is the sheer quality of those receiving or need to receive some form of treatment. Now, WHO's Mental Health Atlas from 2011 provided data that demonstrates the scarcity of resources within countries to meet yes. mental health needs. And it underlines, Craig, a little bit what you referred to of the inequitable distribution and inefficient use of resources. Now, right. globally, for instance, annual spending on mental health is less than US dollars to $2 per person and less right. than 25 cents. Uh, 25 U.S. cents per person in lower-income countries. Now, Absolutely. 67% of these financial resources allocated to standalone mental hospitals, uh, right. despite their association, as we all know, with poor health outcomes and, to some extent, uh, human rights violations as well. It's not always the best place to put people who need the best possible right. recovery. So, question here, and I guess this is now sort of coming to the point that you made earlier: that would redirecting funding and the incentivized angle as you said right um towards broader based care community-based services uh, including integration of mental health into general healthcare settings the maternal sexual reproductive health would that help in some way to perhaps allow now i'm bringing in your point of the economic uh incentive that oh, this could actually mean a lot more this could actually have more quicker better recovery and bring people back into the workforce. Or is it more complex than that I guess the question is more around we're spending too little, and where we're spending it is going into perhaps the wrong area. And is there the need for us to broaden that a bit. Um, yeah. so that so the answer is yes,
1: and yes, but let me now get into more detail right. So certainly, and again, this is a part of the of the mental health parity philosophy, mental health needs to be a part of primary care. Mm-hmm. Because primary care, if there's any area of healthcare that is focused on prevention, mm-hmm. it is primary care.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so by expanding primary care beyond just the physical to the mental, even the social, when we talk about social determinants of health, Well, what that's going to do is it's going to educate people about how to stay healthy to begin with. It's going to catch emergent illness sooner so that it can be addressed sooner and then brought back to wellness before it gets worse. And it's going to, for those that do get ill, because ultimately, you know, the nature Marks of existence are aging, sickness, and death, right? So ultimately, we can't entirely avoid it, but it's about minimizing it and making sure that those who are ill get the right combination of community, therapy, medication, and those other five pillars, right, of diet, sleep, so forth, so on, so that we reduce, as the um, the WHO would say, the number of disability, uh, the Dallies and Callies, right? They they talk about disability, um, disability adjusted life years. There you go, right? So we we improve the 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 quality and the quantity of health that exists in the the years of life that are lived on the planet. Now, knowing that, so yes, we should integrate into primary care. But understand that the the nature of all uh, established, I'll call it status quo, bureaucracy, and standard of practice um, is that you've got to run the gauntlet of getting that change where people are committed to the status quo Mm. and every status quo is benefiting somebody. Mm. And so you have to get those who are benefiting to be willing to allow a shift away from their current benefit. You have to show them why it's beneficial to change, right? The other thing is you've got to re-educate, <laughs> right? So I remember when I was in business school, I had a professor who said, this would sound rather crass. Um, although Let me say it more gently. My professor said change happens one funeral at a time. It's right. probably more, more polite to say change happens one retirement at a time, of right? And and so, you know, th- this is not just, you know, as as you know, having worked in, in corporations on change projects, this is the nature of all human change. It's just that you're still dealing with human beings in healthcare. And so once again, the call of leadership is to orchestrate the change mm-hmm. um, and to see it and work it as the marathon that it is. It's not going to happen overnight but the thing that i like to think about at least once a week whenever i feel despair about the the lack of of quality access and cost effectiveness in healthcare right i re, i think about the fact that my grandparents my great grandparents had a vision that i'm living today
0: oh yeah they started
1: working on all kinds of reforms yeah. right a hundred or more years ago, which allows me to live the life I live today. And so it is now my time to be working on, as they say, planting trees whose shade I will not sit under. But but I'm doing that as my grandparents did that for me. I'm now doing that for my grandchildren, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that encourages me. Because you know, this life that I live here in, in the US didn't just happen overnight right? Clean water and enough food at the grocery store and toilets and sanitation that has doubled our lifespan in in about hundred the last hundred years. Um, Even something as simple as brushing my teeth every day so that my teeth don't fall out by the time I'm 35 years old. That didn't just happen overnight. There were people, our ancestors had vision around this. And so it's now time for us to enact around vision for our children.
0: Greg, your um, analogies are and your quotes are the reason why I've always loved speaking with you. I'm glad. Such a nuance. Um, now, there's something that WHO has tried to approach um, yeah. from what they refer to as action criteria that says, right, uh, we've outlined the framework, we've sort of looked at different perspectives here. Now, here are some or five action criteria um, and they see them as uh, mitigating strategies Uh, and we've touched upon this for our listeners in our first couple of episodes as well and we've sort of tried to focus on a few of those now they're not fully integrated into many healthcare policy making that's a fact and i thought if i'd bounce off a couple with you you'd have a perspective we could sort of just read them out and sort of just have our listeners understand them for what they are so uh, the one that i've picked up the first one is uh it says explicitly include mental health within general and priority health policies plans and research agendas including non-communicable diseases hiv aids women's health child and adolescent health as well as through horizontal programs and partnerships and here's a call out to the global health workforce alliance do some great work and other international and regional partnerships now that's an action criteria but that's also Quite a mouthful <laughs> uh, yeah. to try and say. Let's integrate mental health within general and priority health policies. I think what you were saying earlier was it can go a step further. Perhaps it can even go wider into cultural and traditional uh, aspects yeah. of how health may be maintained. It's it's not just a, a clinical practice. Um, yeah. Any any thoughts to that?
1: Oh yes, yeah, certainly. So so, you know, the WHO's dilemma. Is that they, they do a great job of putting together plans and convening um, authorities and powers that be and getting consensus around plans, but then they have no authority. um, lots of influence to actually implement things. So the, the fact is, and, and my eyes have really been opened around this in the, the you know, the, the last few years that I've been in my public health program. There is no lack of these activities happening. Mm-hmm. It's just that they are happening in a very fragmented mm-hmm. manner. And as James Gibson, the, the, the Canadian English science fiction writer says, the future is here, but it's unevenly distributed, right? So you there are all kinds of programs in every region of the world, some within the WHO, Um, In what we call civil society, NGOs, um, governments of of various, um, are at various levels of engagement. Um, You have kind of your vanguard benchmark nations and then others that are lagging behind. Um, There's a whole, you know, now that we appreciate that for pretty much every communicable, uh, I'm sorry, non communicable disease you've got at least 25% comorbid depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, more and more um, health psychology and health economics research is showing that addressing the mental health piece mm-hmm. is absolute key to getting better outcomes, right? right? And as that converges with more um, support and accountability around value base, you know, mental health has the opportunity to come along with diabetes and cardiovascular and gi and so forth and so on but what will always be frustrating is that it will never be fast enough mm-hmm. and and so there's not a lack of activity we could argue about whether there is enough coordination mm-hmm. but if we're if we're not looking at the success of many grassroots um and, and even kind of treetop initiatives that are going on um, is very easy to get demoralized because it doesn't look as neat and clean as picking up an annual report of a corporation and kind of reading the whole story in one place. Yeah. One of the reasons that I'm inspired to be a researcher and an ed- and a, a researcher and an educator within my own consulting practice is because um after many years of kind of being on the operation side, one of the things I recognized that I was always helped as a change leader by people who played the role of journalist, um, researcher, advisor, um, and educator. And, and so that's a role that I excel in and one that I focus on because while the founder, I call them founders, investors, and implementers are in their, um, in their shops doing what they do, is very lonely and you get deep into a silo and you lose track of the encouragement that comes from understanding the broader picture and who your colleagues are, who you could be partnering with, what your benchmarks are, where progress is in fact being made, what's being learned over there that you may never find out about unless someone is coming to you and pulling you up out of your silo and say, let me show you what we're learning over here. And so I think that that, role within the ecosystem is really, really important. There is absolutely more going on than meets the eye. Um, And so I think that what the, what the WHO has proposed is fortunate that they have the coordination of it again, very fragmented and hard to see, but my research is showing me that there's a lot going on, but it's unwieldy to report, but yet we have to keep doing so.
0: Absolutely, and in fact, yeah. I think the sorry the sex- for such
1: a long-winded answer. <laughs> well,
0: well that, that that that's what we need. Um, I mean, the the intent of these uh, sessions is to gather opinion and thoughts and pull that together in an in an outcome, in an output. So, no, this is this is this is. In fact, the second one that I was going to sort of bring um, to your attention, in a way, yeah. um, echoes what you just said. That if we are indeed to prioritize health policies and plans. Um, it's said to support the creation and strengthening of associations and organizations of people with mental disorders and psychosocial disabilities, as well as families and carers, and their integration into existing disability organizations, and allow for a facilitation dialogue between these groups, health workers, government authorities in health, human rights, disability, education, employment, the judiciary, and social sectors. So, there is, I think, in, in, in that regard, this real active attempt that let's put advocates and seed them where they need to be and get them into places where they can make a difference. Um, and come back to that point that create actual active policy um, that is yeah. implementable. Um yeah,
1: so, so you know, this second piece that you mentioned here is unfortunately terribly under resourced. Mm. A lot going on, but not as much going on as could be going on if it were better resourced. Right? right, right. This gets back to the earlier points that I made about the need for a change in values and incentives, a better telling of the crisis story, mm-hmm. right around around economics, um, social and environmental damage. Um a better training and continuous support of leadership, right, because change is accelerated either by crisis or leadership. And when the two come together, that's when you get to tipping points in structural change much faster, right? We know this from change management practice and theory. Um, And then really continuing to chip away at at this um, mindset of, of, um, I'm just going to use the term of profit, of financial profit maximization that overshadows the incentives Mm -hmm. for social and environmental. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, as much as it grieves me to see the the various breakdowns in um, civil and economic society all over the world right now, Hmm. The silver lining of it is that is creating the crises hmm. that we're not able to look away from so easily, sure. that frankly ushers in changes in values and incentives and in orientations that though it, there will be a lot of suffering in its wake, hmm. ultimately gets us to the changed world that we want to see.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: right so um so may we be um courageous and encouraged as leaders in kind of finding our role and our place in getting this change mm-hmm. and st- sticking with it um robert greenleaf in his um who's one of the founders of um the modern concept of servant leadership um In his book, he talks about the importance of strength as a characteristic. And the definition that he uses of strength is the capacity to work on a complex and difficult problem for a a long and sustained period of time until you get the result that you wanna get, (laughs) right? (laughs) right. And and, and so we're talking about decades now, not years, right? and and so may all of may may all of us as leaders find our place um and our role within this change that we want to see and stick with it um and for those like you and myself Raheed who are mid career um may we find ourselves find our role as as trainers and mentors that now help the generation coming up behind us um to understand earlier what the bigger picture is, to understand better the skills that they need to be developing and the strengths that they have to, and the competencies they have to offer to this struggle and this movement, right? So, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think our listeners will now soon realize that this is why um, this area or the paradigms of mental health uh, is so, uh, complex is a weak word. Um, it's it's multifaceted, right? And I think the idea that we are on a journey um, and not just reaching a destination. I think we're hearing yeah. some words from you, Craig, on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the Brits. I I did my
1: graduate um, my graduate business work in the UK um, at the University of Westminster, and one of my professors called us. These are wicked problems.
0: Wicked problems. There you wicked.
1: go. Wicked. That's it, right?
0: <laughs> students, policy students, listening, right? The wicked, wicked right? <laughs> oh, oh, this is a wicked problem. So what do we need? Need yeah. Uh, yeah, all sorts of fish analysis and the what, why. Oh my goodness, so you're taking us <laughs> back to policy school now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, quick. Um, now uh, as we come up to our hour, um, I I, I I love to ask um you um because I think there are. Well, we've talked about all the various different facets and all the, you know, issues and the challenges. On a, yeah. on a note yeah. for those young people, for those who are experiencing perhaps uh, uh, either a set of, uh, let's say, would like to hear what you would have to say to them, um, uh, mm-hmm. and in your words, what what's your what's your parting message, really?
1: Yeah. So a few things. Um, so one recommit and recommit and recommit and recommit to the five pillars of health Mm. eat well move develop good relationship skills and use that to cultivate relationships um one-on-one and and develop a community for yourself of support sleep well and relax right that's that's the foundation without that foundation You can't take enough drugs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and get enough doctor's appointments to help you. And we're learning this more and more all the time. The other thing is um, family, community support and resilience that we we have become toxically individualistic in our modern times, Uh, but how we have made it as a species has been through community, Mm -hmm. right? And again they're not going to be enough doctors no one's coming to help us on that one i shouldn't say no one there will not ever be enough help Mm -hmm. from the formal professional medical realm for most of us Mm -hmm. right so we have to recover practices of community support and resilience
0: Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm.
1: the next thing and of course I, I, i maybe i should have said more about this along the way we need to develop better digital health literacy.
0: Right. You nice. know, all of
1: us are walking around with these smartphones, <laughs> and we've got really good at using them to be communicators, shoppers, and workers. <laughs> right. <laughs> but those are our, our, our digital devices are just as capable of educating us, um, giving us practice and training, and helping us to measure our behaviors in a way, and and helping us to to develop community, right? So like the the, the four key roles that digital technology play in health are education, practice and training, cultivating community, and tracking and measuring behavior so that we get better and better, right? (laughs) And so digital health literacy digital mental health literacy, digital physical health literacy is about really understanding how to leverage our technology, not just to communicate, work, and shop, but to leverage it to help us improve our health, Mm. right? And and who will be better at this than young people who already are digital natives, but just lack this particular digital skill set? Yeah. Right, And we could have some further discussions about this because I've been developing yeah. some training around this particular topic. I, I,
0: this is a whole new episode. I mean, um, digital yeah. health literacy, it's interesting yeah. because I was on an episode yesterday where we talked about the lack of emotional literacy. And I think it's the two are sort of, it's a, they're, they're similar, they, they're conjoined. They go they're, together. It's a mesh. Yeah, and I think we need to be talking more about what it takes to be more digitally uh, uh emotionally literate right Absolutely. outside um, the uh, the health literacy angles as well right. Right? i think that's that's, yeah. that's a great point i mean we do need yeah to- but remember
1: the technology always plays those four roles hmm. training i'm sorry education which is about facts training which is about practice community which is about having people who support you in you're getting better and measurement yeah which is about understanding where i am on the path and where I need to recommit or start, stop or continue as we used to say, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and then the final thing I would offer is reconnection um, to complementary and alternative forms of therapy Mm -hmm. and particularly those that come out of your native culture, whatever your native culture happened to be, Mm -hmm. right? So for me, that would be Africa Mm -hmm. for you South South Asia. Um, you know, in, in my research is showing me that even in Europe, even in Western Europe, they have indigenous pre-industrial culture and practice, right? Celtic, uh, Lapland, right? You know, up in Scandinavia and so forth and so on, right? That they even can, can reconnect with as a part of community health Mm -hmm. and these five pillars that we talked about earlier. And yes, there are an abundance of digital apps and modalities that can help with facilitating that. Mm -hmm. And so these are the big opportunities that we don't hear enough about. Mm -hmm. We hear so much about the problem. We need to create better parity of also talking about the solutions that are available to us and which are enabled through a better skillful use of, again, those five pillars, the digital technologies we have, the communities that we live within. Excellent. So I hope that's helpful.
0: Very, very much so. Thank you, okay. thank you so much. Very good. Uh, with that, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Um, as yes. always, we so appreciate um, uh, the feedback we get. Uh, keep those feedback, uh, emails and uh chats that you send over do let us know uh and as always uh we're, we're glad to always have uh your uh, thoughts on uh what the discussion today has happened as well so do please um write into us and tell us more about that and we can always see how we uh help factor that in into our next few yes, sessions great yes, thank you so much for your thank time you. your wisdom your um your approach and as i said nuance on on a topic such as this which is almost like trying to grasp water to many people but at the same time at least we can try and make some sense of that um you can find out more uh, about us over at the voicesprojectasia.org uh, you can follow us on spotify and our rss channels uh, this particular uh, season is not going to be i think the the end all it's going to actually probably be the very much beginning so so we look forward to that thank you all so much for listening in and talk to you very soon thanks great
1: all right thank you again Raheem a great pleasure be well now.